If anything, though, just to illustrate how old and why the motivation for the system exists, the fact that it's lasted for so long and the fact that we still have an honor system and it still has currency in the sense of appealing to a genuine idea of the second estate of the true nobility should demonstrate that regardless of the French Revolution, regardless of the expansion of the franchise in this country, despite every egalitarian overture made in the last 500 years, this system, in this country at least, has been able to hold on, albeit in its bastardized form, as with the monarchy. There is still hope, there are still these sacred relics, these emblems of something which is wedded to this idea of Englishness, which we haven't lost yet. And the fact that they want it, the fact that they want it at all, is this organism still in force? Because if it was valueless, because of course they've degraded it by their corruption, but ultimately, underneath, originally, that's still the divinity in it. So it's still rescuable, it's still rescuable if we act. So today I'm talking with the great continental historian, Apostolic Majesty, who, which many of you guys might know, it's a great conversation. Hope you enjoy it. Links to a channel in the description. What I like about you is it's it's giving people an alternative to this this kind of Starkism, you know, in terms of especially with English history, is uh, there's this kind of boomer Starkey, uh, repeater home of his uh, his views, and so it gives people a. And you're Catholic, correct? Well, that, that's quite an interesting angle to sort of bring up the Starkeyism, because when I was much younger, I was actually quite um, enamoured with Starkey, you know, growing up watching the uh, the Channel 4 documentaries, etc. Mm. Um, I'm not that much older now, but but anyway, having sort of come from that side of things, it's interesting how I, the reason I, I, I you mentioned, you know, I sort of go beyond Starkeyism, it's partly because I'm more of a continental historian. I focus obviously on various aspects of English history and I want to do more of that if I'm going to um, be building up more streams on my channel at some later date in the future but most of the content which exists and most of my sort of academic interest has resided on the continent in particular around sort of southern Germany, Austria, Mm -hmm. Russia etc and as a result of that I tend to approach things at least conceptually from a continental sort of monarchist standpoint and maybe that puts me in relatively good stead when confronting what you mentioned as boomerism with uh with david starkey mm-hmm. i think there's also uh, i've been thinking interestingly enough about starkey and modern political commentary mm-hmm. uh, in particular his assessments of boris johnson and the queen and i feel that he's guilty of one of um Vico's great sins which is ascribing your own ideas to other personalities yeah um in in regarding boris johnson in particular this idea of a conscious sort of disraelian approach of trying to reify bring back a authentic version of one nation conservatism which i think was absolute complete nonsense as was completely (laughs) demonstrably sort of proved over the last um few years so that I would say is a limitation of Starkey. But you also bring up the fact that I'm a Catholic. What I find rather sort of frustrating with Starkey, despite the fact that he is very well acquainted with the primary sources at the time, and considering he is an early modernist, mm. his main focus is on the Tudors, in particular Henry VIII. And from this, he, his intellectual sort of indebtedness comes from Geoffrey Elton. 
he seems to have no understanding of Catholicism. And I find that really rather remarkable, considering that his area of study is the English Reformation. On the one hand, he's fully aware of the development, the English religious and theological traditions emanating from the English Reformation, but he can't even describe basic things such as the idea of Catholic infallibility, papal infallibility. And that has always quite um, shocked me in a way which I think speaks to, you can say, maybe even an Anglo-chauvinism regarding his own sort of views on European monarchy, which is strange because he's also spoken with sort of great respect for the Spanish monarchy in particular as the great sort of um, antagonist of England during the 16th century. So there are many aspects with Starkey, which I've I found frustrating to deal with, um, especially later as he has transitioned more with the new cultural forum into political commentary. Yeah, I think with Starkey too, he, he kind of, what I find about him, there's lots of great detail you get, but with him I find he is a kind, sorry, with him I find he's a kind of decadent romantic. A decadent romanticism in the sense not in the sense of genuine romanticism as in the philosophical romanticism but the one that is his underpinnings are materialist but he's trying to paint it's a materialist painting with gaudy pomp you know what i mean so instead of having the when you look at carlisle when he's describing history it's coming to him it's coming from underneath he's feeling it in his being and then articulating it what he has sensed from out of these characters and these people and these heroes, what is in them, what made them so rawly heroic, or made this age rawly heroic. Whereas, yeah, Starkey just doesn't, it feels like he's trying to do that, but because he just isn't, he just doesn't have any, I know he's an atheist, he doesn't have that Well, yes, I mean, he's your classic, he's your classic sort of 90s libertarian in that sense, in terms of his materialism, atheist libertarianism. And therefore, I mean, I don't begrudge him a sense of postmodernism, because I believe everyone who is generally sort of conceptually thinking on the right has an element of postmodernism or a desire to invent or discern invented traditions. Mm. But going back to your point about Carlyle versus Starkey, I think this is due to his intellectual indebtedness to Jeffrey Elton. I don't think you can find more of a polar opposite in terms of a conception of history Mm. from Carlyle to go to Elton, because I do view Carlyle more as a poet than I do Mm. as a historian. Mm. Rather, he is a poet trying to live in history, whereas Elton, if anything, was more your last sort of demonstration of the vanguard of sort of Rankianism into the English historical tradition. So Mm. it's interesting, but I do think it's obvious that coming from that completely separate intellectual tradition that Starkey would arrive at something which is anti-Carlyle. Do you think that what this other figure you mentioned that's uh, influenced this uh, Starkey, is he a sort of let's find the middle ground mimic science? Because that seems to be what Starkey, his approach, he mentions it on his channel where he says, you know, we'll use science to you know, keep this obje- objective or whatnot. Is that, is that, was that this person's dry style? Was that the idea? Because it seems like well, I mean, Starkey begins with that dry middle ground, but then adds this gaudy pomp to it with his pronunciations, with his over-accentuation of things that just don't have that uh, spirit to them. 
I mean, I'm not exactly against over-accentuation, as you're probably familiar with my channel. Um, but regarding this, uh, Jeffrey Elton, it, it comes from a different sort of historical tradition where you're looking at the facts as speaking from them, um, speaking for themselves. Right. And therefore, you're looking for the real truth contained within the sources. However, I'm, I push back against this because I believe the fundamental role of the historian is as the interpreter of the historical evidence and not only the interpreter of the historical yeah. evidence, the selector of what is a historical fact and what isn't. Yes. And as a, as a result of this, we can contest the idea of objectivity. We can contest the idea of mm. science, but um, with Starkey, I do believe that it is less original and he is indebted to Jeffrey Elton in the sense. And as you mentioned, there is a bit of embellishment, but nevertheless, I would like to say that, David Starkey was sort of instrumental in sort of beginning my sort of fascination with monarchy. So I, I want to sort of credit him mm. in that sense. And I also want to sort of credit the idea that there is a place for, uh, you know, you can say superficial aspects such as the voice, such as presentation, mm. because getting people to think critically about history, especially now, is something which is more essential perhaps than ever. So David Starkey may be a flawed vessel, but I still believe he can be in some ways an effective tool in terms of bringing people into this conception of history. Yeah, I th look, I don't disagree with everything he says. I've got I've got less of a continental uh, view than you than you do. Um and and uh you know, I've, I've certainly appreciated the work that he's done. And I I think too it's not always there are two ways in. When you're, when you just, when it becomes too gaudy pomp, that's a, that's for me, that's a problem. But I think with Carlyle, you mentioned poetry with him. I think, as Heidegger talks about, when you get down to the bottom, and if you uncover, or you're trying to uncover the truth of the being of the matter in this history, right, as it was, then I think naturally that's okay if you are articulating it in that poetic way. It's not poetry, it's not untrue. It's using this, it's opening, it's disclosing something that, that he believes to be true of that period that he's articulating. So it doesn't make it any less ob objective. He's actually trying to, like a, a great symbol is the most efficient means to uncover something that isn't in a proposition. Same sort of thing. To actually properly understand what was going on at the time, you need to have a sense of what the attunement was, what it was like to be in it. And that's not Gordy Pomp. And if, if it, that's breathed into it, you can have authentic life to your poetic rendering of the history, I think, and have that, that powerful, inspired uh, delivery about the history that can inspire people, but not adding it after the fact, not trying to make something that's boring, um, not what it's not. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I, I think I do. And I think it's a very important point which you bring up just to go on Heidegger, sort of finding the Dasein within history, finding the presence or the being of history. And in terms of how, how to elucidate this with Carlyle, again, I feel that that's his great strength, especially with his work on the French Revolution. However, it, it becomes a matter less than when you get into the poetry of historical interpretation and trying to exist within the history itself, trying to form a presence or a link, a sympathetic link. 
Um, you know, coming back to David Starkey again, David Starkey refers to this as another form of tourism. And that is another sort of rather base way of sort of referring to what you're discussing, which is sympathetically entering into not just different places, but different times, different cultures, different personalities, trying to think as they would think and enter sympathetically into their situation. And thus you, the historian, therefore, is almost sort of subsumed into his period of study, subsumed into his characters to the point that, if anything, there has to be a an aspect which is self-rejecting, in which you're not imposing your own prejudices onto the people in the past, therefore mm. push back against any sort of sense of presentism. Yet at the same time, the historian's personality must come through in terms of his original investment in that period, his qualifications, his ability to understand and rationalize this period, and ultimately his ability to make sense of it. Let's explore this term, the West, its origins. We can go into Occidental, for instance, but let, its use, what's its use? How How useful is it? What's what are the benefits of having it as an all-encompassing thing that covers all of Europe? What are the cons, perhaps, of having that? And also, what are, would perhaps be the benefits as describing it as, say, German civilization and French civilization and English civilization? What would the benefits perhaps be of that? What are the necessary conditions of the category itself? Uh, and perhaps we can dig into that. And perhaps maybe we can also talk about the events with the death of the monarch, that we can just go out wherever we want in the conversation, but I just thought we might cross over into that and just to get your thoughts on, on the category of the, of the West itself. Well, I suppose the West is as much a geographical sort of construct, which is evolving as it is a cultural mode. And in this sense, you would look to say, for example, the sort of political constitutions and thinkers within America and France, and you look at the sort of neoclassicism which reinvigorated and created the liberalism of the modern world and the new West with America, with, with North America in particular, and the, the white settler colonies, the dominions, former dominions, and we conceive of that as the West. It's interesting to consider that such a place would begin in Greece, yet I no longer consider Greece to be part of this conception of the West. And that should be interesting in terms of understanding all of these cultural continuities and cultural breaks. On the one hand, Greece is synonymous with the beginning of Western civilization due to the classical era of Greek civilization in the 5th century, the expansion of the colonia, the idea of the Greek city-state, the, the politeia, and in, more importantly, I suppose, in terms of the sort of principles of modern democratic governance, the origin of democracy in Athens, coinciding, of course, with the origins of mathematics, philosophy, and indeed, for the sense of this conversation, the intellectual continuity of history, beginning with Herodotus. So in that sense, you can say that Western civilization, as, say, for example, distinct from Mesopotamian civilization, Iranian civilization, Chinese civilization, Egyptian civilization begins in Greece and it exports itself to Rome, which fashions it into a new civilizational complex and a state building structure, a legal system, which forms the territorial basis 
for the later Western nations that will come about as a result of the great migrations in the 5th century, the creation of the nations of Spain, of France, indeed of England over the course of the, the, the so-called Dark Ages from the 5th century up until the 10th century. But this is where we get an interesting sort of cultural break and why we have to talk about the idea of sort of Greece, despite being the supposed origin of this, transporting the civilization to Rome. Because Rome converts to Christianity during the 4th century. And during the 5th century, Rome irrevocably divides into two halves, Western and Eastern. Over the course of several centuries, after a, a sort of a, you can say a half-hearted attempt of the Eastern Romans to reconquer Italy, which severs its links in the northern Rome in the 8th century, we begin to see two cultural sort of camps in Europe emanating from the division of Rome in the West and Rome in the East. And this is the origin of Catholic civilization in the West and Orthodox civilization in the East. And this is confirmed in 1054 with the Great Schism. So throughout the medieval period, up until the Reformation, you have a Catholic world, which is, for our intents and purposes, the basis of the modern West. And you have a Eastern world, which is, for the purposes of this conversation, the Balkans, Serbia, Bulgaria, Romania, Ukraine, Belarus, Russia, and of course, Greece. So in this sense, already by the medieval period, despite the intellectual indebtedness of the West, quote unquote, to Greece, already it has begun to transform geographically, and now it means something else. Indeed, parts that were never sort of inspired by Greek civilization or Roman civilization, like the Scandinavian countries, are now being incorporated into this idea of the Republic of Christianity or the Catholic sort of Commonwealth. Then we begin to see the exporting of this idea to the New World. In 1492, Columbus discovers the Caribbean islands, Hispaniola, mm. and from there we see a plethora of Spanish and Portuguese conquests in all directions, which is followed up by Dutch, French, and English conquests. Yet at the same time, I think it's interesting to note that when we think of the collective West, we don't tend to think of Latin America necessarily as obviously coming out as this idea as part of the collective West. So towards the 17th century, the 18th century, in particular the 19th century, you can say that what becomes the West morphs into this idea of the Anglosphere, as opposed to this idea of the Christian Commonwealth. And it's less associated with Catholicism, but because of the Reformation, it is now associated with Anglicanism and Protestantism in America the Commonwealth countries and Great Britain, to the extent that there is a cultural divide separating the Anglosphere from the continent, as there is a cultural divide separating the continent from the East, which is under the control of the Ottomans, a Muslim dynasty, and Russia, which remains Orthodox. So already you can see, just me very briefly summarizing around 2000 years of history, mm. that the idea of Western civilization has issues because it has many it has intellectual roots in one place mm. it is evolving geographically and it is evolving in terms of a system of belief and in terms of the dominant prevailing cultures within such a system mm. so what do you take the cultural divide to be because when i look at this when i look at this question i think about okay necessarily sufficient conditions what okay what do we all have this west that these people say what do we all have metaphysics Yes, we had metaphysics. 
the Greek influence, Christianity. And then I, so I look at those as necessary conditions. And then I see, of course, and you go, when you're looking at the border case of this, <clears throat> the border case is Russia because they have all the same things apart from this split you're talking about, which is the Orthodox um, Roman split in terms of this term West. Because with West, they include the continent. I do agree with what you're saying, though, that there is a split between Anglosphere and Continentalism. But I suppose if we can get at what that is, and also why is, how meaningful is the category if Russia has metaphysics? You might look at the other, the other, um, the other border cases, which is Finland with its language isn't Lithuania was pagan until it was, uh, 1600 yet yeah, that's in the west is that how, like, how meaningful is this category how helpful is this category um when when defining this thing is what I mean, why do it what i guess there, there's only a use for a category if it is helpful in being a describer descriptor for something that oh that's that i mean there's a reason why the term red pill exists isn't there because it describes an actual unique new phenomena Looking at this linguistically and ethnically, I mean, just take Russia, say, for example. What I've always found rather remar remarkable is to, even before the creation of a alphabet for the Slavic peoples, Slavic languages have a mutual intelligibility, which is almost unique from Russians to Slovenes. And yet just look at that cultural divide. What connects Slovenes, Croatians, Czechs, and Poles, Catholicism. What connects Serbs, Bulgarians, and Russians, or all sort of subsets, whether it be Belarusian or Ukrainian, orthodoxy. So we're talking about two language groups, so sort of a language group immersed and sort of almost mutually intelligible. We're looking at an ethnicity, and yet we're looking at a significant geographic and cultural divide. Mm. So this, again, complicates our conception of unifying these various groups if we're going to interrogate this idea mm. of race or even language, if we look at this definitive cultural split between Eastern and Western Catholicism. And indeed, that split, if you, even if you look politically, exists to some extent to this day. Serbia is not a member of the European Union. Bulgaria is a wary member of the European Union. And the identity of Ukraine is being decided as we're speaking at this precise moment. Is it part of the West or is it part of the East? And therefore, this question among the Slavic peoples is always in flux. And of course, you compare that to Evola uses the term Hyperborean, which is perhaps a more accurate term in terms of expressing this idea of a people from the North, Borean, obviously, from the Latin, and juxtaposing that with Semitic civilization, Arab civilization, Jewish civilization, Phoenician civilization, civilization which apparently, from Evola's point of view, originates from the West. And in this case, we would look at Borean civilization as having a Germanic tint to it. So, of course, the Scandinavian Nordic countries, we look at England, we look at the Netherlands, we look at Germany, even France, to some extent. France is in this unique case of being the fusion of Celtic civilization, Roman civilization, and German civilization through this Frankish, through these Frankish roots. So if you really interrogate this idea of race, you suddenly understand that it's a unsatisfactory category in many senses in terms of trying to create broad, unifying sort of conceptions of civilizational categories, whether it be West or East. 
Well, that's where I find the geography is really helpful because as we we understand from Heidegger as well, is that the very place itself informs it. It's an enabling, it's an enabling constraint, a selective constraint for the place. If you think about cultural sphere. So if we just go by religion, so it seems to me that the, the way you're thinking is the best, help, most helpful way of dividing it is particularly by, okay, that's that the religious group. Okay, it's okay, you've got the Anglican Church, you've got Catholicism being the continent, and you've got the Eastern Orthodox Church. Here's our, our meaningful, useful splits. For me, I think that it's... it's Sorry, just, add... just to push back against that, um, if that's possible. Oh, um, sure. I, I feel that that was a useful differentiation and in some respects it is especially with the slavic example i brought up but within the whole idea of the sort of catholic commonwealth one thing which is sort of unique if anything to the former catholic commonwealth as opposed to orthodoxy even as opposed to islam because this is not like the shia sunni split which is sort of begins with the conception of islamic civilization but in the West, we have the Protestant Catholic split. Mm. And this further complicates this idea of this unity between groups. And of course, there is also an ethnic dimension to the groups who are more prone to Protestantism, Mediterranean civilization associated with Catholicism, Northern Nordic civilization associated with Protestantism as well. So within this broad definition, which I throw up, which was very pertinent for the medieval era, mm. already we're throwing in different categories, which are complicating this. And by the 19th century, we're looking at a whole different construct of new nationalisms, new identities, which are forever sort of disintegrating the former bedrock of European civilization, which was the indebtedness to sort of German Roman culture and Christianity. By the 19th century, all of these things are no longer certain. And by the 20th century, it could be argued that all of these things are being actively dismantled. What do you mean by all of these things aren't certain? Like what things do you mean? Christianity, Christianity and the idea of a civilizational built around that medieval conception of Christian unity. The whole thing. By the 19th century, as a result of the French Revolution in particular, there has been a great hollowing out of this faith in this conception of civilization built around Christianity. Instead, it's replaced by adherence to the idea of reason the idea of the luminaries, the idea of the enlightenment, the idea that science and reason and progressivism will take over that role from Christianity. And indeed, it's something which runs deep in terms of not just France, but various European monarchies, even Austria, before the French Revolution. Mm. The French Revolution is just the most obvious and violent expression of these values and the in, ter in terms of trying to replace everything down to trying to replace the system of time itself with the system of the decade and destroy taking away the catholic churches and turning them into temples for reason and obviously coming we're coming up with a new god of nature the cult of the supreme being so in the sense yes actively being challenged but of course this brings with it how does one construct a new identity once the intellectual bedrock the sort of class of theologians have been removed from power and their property has been confiscated it now becomes as Talleyrand to refer to it goods of the nation yeah, and we it's... begin. Oh, sorry, go. I thought you'd stop. Sorry, there. sorry, Continue. sorry. We, we begin. We begin the process of nationalization, and we create these new 
national categories, which are superseding these older religious, and I hate to use the word, ideological categories. The interesting thing there, too, is that a lot of those things, they exist in the propositional sphere. We know from cognitive science, there's procedural knowledge, perspectival knowledge, propositional knowledge, and there's another one that I can't exactly remember. But the question is, did those, how many of those categories already exist rather than saying, okay, this, this creation of, ah, uh, this modern phenomena of a nation or how, how much of it is, because we know that our, lots of our cognition comes from simply our interaction with the environment that we're in, in terms of as, again, this is where I was going before when I mentioned Heidegger again, is he, he has this book, uh, he wrote when he went to Greece and talks about how, how, the, how cognition itself is formed by the very contrast of the land how the, and from the temple. So, of course, the temple is the most important part of it, being that the founding of the sacred is where all the other values come from. You can't see contrast without that. But the very landscapes themselves, those enabling constraints, those selective constraints, inform that common interest. So how long ago did those national interests exist before... Let's, especially in England, when you look at that, you have, a, you have an island there that has its borders that don't move all that much compared to the continent. How long do these constraints and these common interests and these significant differences of behavioral patterns between English and French and German, they predate these concepts? They are true of being, are they not? I mean, when I look into it, it seems to be the case to me that they are. Because if we're all interchangeable, how meaningful is that to say that we are? Because we see in plain experience that when, when a Frenchman goes to England, when an Englishman goes around, these people don't act the same way that he does. Obviously, that contrast isn't as large as if you went to Iraq, but still, it's a significant difference. It's not just a uh, add a Roman plus a Greek equals an Englishman or a Frenchman. You know what I mean? I, I, I'm very sort of grateful that you, you asked this question because my, my point needs elaboration. Nationalism, as conceived of in the late 18th century, 19th century sense, is different from this idea of nationality. Nationality, when I refer to it, is something that I believe has existed so long as tribes have existed, tribes as the extensions of families. When we look at nationalism... But the reason I believe is essential in terms of, you can say, challenging this conception of civilizational groups is that nationalism overrides any other civilizing force. When we look at medieval Europe, something that is remarkable about medieval Europe is, say, com compared to the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, when we see the expansion, we see the creation of Roman colonies, Roman cities prefab architecture, the standardization of Latin, um, the integration of the conquered peoples into the Roman army. It's not until later in the Roman Empire that we begin to see serious sort of ethnic issues compounded by the great migrations begin to beset and challenge the state of empire. But this whole original way of ruling during the Pax Romana, it, and this idea of a unified state, a unified army, a unified administration under a single ruler, the figure of the impalator or the emperor. This is not something which is ever, despite the attempts of the Holy Roman Empire, 
this isn't something that's ever fully achieved post the fall of the Western Roman Empire. The East goes on, but that's, again, not necessarily part of your conception of uh, or this conception of Occidental or Western civilization. So in the West, we see the creation of nations out of the ruin of the Western Roman Empire. But the residue of Roman civilization, and indeed the residue of the church, is significant enough to be able to conquer the nations which have themselves replaced the Roman Empire. So what has replaced the Roman Empire is a civilization with nations, all sharing some form of civilizational route back to the Catholic Church. And fundamentally, there is an intellectual class united with a single language, in this case, Latin, as in the East, Greek, albeit this would change with the old Slavonic languages, but that's neither here nor there for this conversation. So in this sense, there is there are nations, and there is a civilization, civilizing force beyond that of the nation. When we come, and of course, this is what separates the idea of an English nation, which was formed in the 10th century, the Frankish nations, West Francia, East Francia, and the remnants of Italy that form the sort of basis of the territories and the ethnicities of France and Germany. I mean, even if you look at Germany, Germany at this time is a confederation of stem duchies. These ideas that the tribe, whether you're Bavarian, whether you're a Frank, whether you're a Saxon, is a greater signifier than being German. So within these nationalities, there are sub-tribes. And yet, underneath all of this is the bedrock of Christian civilization. And you mentioned the pagans in Lithuania. This Christian civilization continues to grow and expand throughout the course of the medieval period, to the point that when the Lithuanians do convert to Catholicism, they aren't conquered, but rather they accept this process of conversion for pragmatic reasons, and they enter into the civilization despite retaining their nationhood. When we come to the French Revolution, when we look at, say, for example, romantic ideals of German nationalism, and many, in many senses, this was a reaction to the French Revolution, these are attempts to fill a void which has been created by the attacks against this civilizational force which was predominant during the medieval period. And the attacks have by this time endured for hundreds of years. We had the Reformation, you have the Thirty Years' War, and then you also have other conflicts between Parliament and King as well. All of these ideas which underpin Western civilization have been gradually disintegrating until we see the resurgence of the Enlightenment. And by the 19th century, there is a need to replace it. And so we have German nationalism, we have Italian nationalism, we have French nationalism, we have Russian nationalism, we have Pan-Slavism, etc. And even looking at Pan-Slavism again, trying to look to an ethnic category, a linguistic category, which supersedes religious differences again. As with Germany, of course, Germany being very complicated, because if we get rid of the idea that Austria is separate from the idea of a German nation, half of Germany is Catholic and half of Germany is Protestant. So inevitably, in order to create a German nationality, it would need to supersede the religious divide. And do you think that that, that may have happened anyway because of the differing languages across across the um, across Catholicism, that this, because of that, let's say that you didn't have the 
the need to replace it with French, with with uh, you say as you say with the French uh, Revolution, would that have happened anyway? I wonder, in terms of this need for the specificity of that um, of that cultural group, with its language and its its, its own enabling constraints, its own uh, ways of being that are common to it. If it was still ruled by the, if it still had the, the church at the top of it, the civilizing forces you call it, would it would that be would that have happened anyway over time because of because of the different languages? Well, what's interesting to note about nationalism is that nationalism is an attack on linguistic dialects and linguistic particularism. So this is the thing when we look at like Parisian, the Ile-de-France dialect of French as the predominant language in France, not to mention we have Occitan in the south we have various german groups within there as well of course we have breton which isn't even a french gaelic language it's a brythonic language mm. this desire to forcefully integrate all of these language groups under a uniform language set by the capital in this case the parisian dialect of french is i would say a consequence of the nationalism which supersedes the religion so it's interesting to consider that had this desire not to create these uniform administrations existed, then there wouldn't have been the necessity to, say, for example, transcend regional loyalties. So, for example, if I'm in France, I am, I live in Bordeaux. I am loyal to this idea of Gascon identity. If I live in Dijon, I'm loyal to this idea of Burgundian civilization. If I live in Rennes, I'm loyal to this idea of Breton civilization. All of these regional demarkers have to sort of make way for this new religion, effectively, which is that of the idea of the nation, which is France. In the same way in Germany, this is far more pronounced. And even today, there is an element of the old state structure which exists constitutionally in the fact that Germany is federal, whereas France is centralized. In Germany, there is Austrian, there is Bavarian, there is Swabian, there is Saxon, etc., etc., etc. So one wonders again that nationalism is in many ways an artificial construct, painting over all these various regional identities. And the fascinating thing about this idea of a civilizational construct overlapping everything from Finland all the way to Portugal, as it existed when Europe was integrated under Catholicism, or at least Western Europe, is the fact that these regional identities are allowed to exist and it is only the need to centralize or the need to compensate for a lack of that civilizational authority which comes from something beyond the nation that, if anything, creates the impetus to remove these regional differences which separate the political center from the periphery. England is an interesting case because unlike France, unlike Germany, England has, for the most part, been relatively politically centralized. You could say that from 1066, England, as a possession of the Norman dukes and later of the Counts of Anjou, was a more centralized domain than any other state in Europe, more than Castile, which would later become Spain, more than the early sort of renderings of Portugal, more than the Holy Roman Empire, and definitely more than France. So English identity in this sense is unique, because by the conquest, 
the old differentiations of the old seven kingdoms, whether you were from Northumbria, whether you're from East Anglia, whether you're from Mercia, whether you're from Wessex, have already given way to an idea of English nationality to such an extent that there almost wasn't the need for a French Revolution to reimpose this idea. Instead, we have the idea of British nationality, which is very much more complicated in the sense that Britain is a it's a union of nations as opposed to a single nation imposing its identity on everyone else in a way that France never was. Yeah, I think with that, I've always thought about the British thing is that really it's the civic label for an English identity. When anything British is talked about, in reality, it ends up being English, especially when you look at the Lowland Scots. It's the Highland Scots that uh, that uh, spoke Gaelic, but the Lowland Scots have always spoken English. Um, but yeah, when it comes to that term, when anyone's ever invented something that is British, oh, here's what a British thing is, here's a Britishness, it's always Englishness with a civic label. So it's not just that it's a civic identity, it's Englishness with a with a British but a British identity. But when you you mentioned that too, I thought oh the interesting fact too is that the centralization of the languages was something that was big on the continent with Germany. Uh, the, the, they imposed it uh, top down. Same with the accent with with the French, and uh, I'm not sure what the accent what happened with the accent with the Germans, but that didn't happen in England either. So that seems to support your theory there um, about about the, the the lack of need to do that. It seems to have emerged on its own, and perhaps that itself is is driven too by the enabling constraint or the selective constraint of have it being an island, the geography again for informing. But also the stark geography in terms of you've got water there. It's got your borders set for you over time anyway. Whereas when yeah. you have a big landmass, you don't have that. But you've got that water saying that's where you are and then that's you can't go further. And you see with the genetic mappings that people don't move. The same genetic groups are in the same areas that they were before, apart from going across the empire, of course. But they haven't really moved to the different places uh, when you look at that um, the data of that. So it's yes, just just to just to build on that point, even within the British Isles, there are internal boundaries. So English sort of civilization reaches to Snowdonia in the west and up to the Highlands in the north. So it's interesting that you mentioned Lowlands culture as being receptive to Englishness, despite sort of what's going on politically there at the moment. And it's interesting to note that it seems the most arbitrary border in England is that between England and Scotland and was the border that was liable to change many, many times, especially over the city of Berwick, which at one point would have been the largest city and main trading capital of Scotland. But besides that, if we get to sort of Snowdonia, if we get to the Highlands, of course, that was the extent of not just English sort of influence, but also Roman control at the same time. So yes, on the one hand, you have borders which are defined by being an island, the sense that we're bound by the Irish Sea, the North Sea, the English Channel, etc. But there is also a Celtic rim within Britain, which complicates this idea of British civilization, because again, you talk about Western civilization. Well, British is three things. British is the original civilization, the Celtic, Brythonic, Britain civilization, which preceded the Anglo-Saxon conquest. 
Britain is a geographic marker, and for the sense of the English kings, you know, this was a title going back to James I when he became King of England and Scotland in 1603. This idea of elevating the mere kingdom of England to wanting to become the king of Great Britain, which is for senses of prestige more than this idea of an amalgamation of ethnicities and nationalities. And then we come to the final definition, which is looking at all of these ideas, this Welsh identity, this even Cornish identity, Scottish identity, Gaelic identity, as in some way connected with the English identity as well, which is complicated in terms of our view. And it's more complicated than what we see with France, because unlike the situation in Brittany, Scotland wasn't conquered by England. Scotland joined via monarch and then joined politically via the Union and the Parliaments in 1707. So as a result of this, and even the sort of recreation of Welsh nationalism and Welsh autonomy, all of these things complicate our view of what it even means to be British, given the sense that devolution is accelerating within these territories and Celtic nationalism is asserting itself in opposition to this idea of a British sort of family of Celtic and English-speaking nations. Well, that's the thing, too, with that Celtic idea, is that the, the Welsh education system was big in terms of educating English kings. They They wrote when the English kings did write in Alfred's time. So the idea that there isn't Celticness in Englishness, there isn't, for instance, I mean, like I did mention, of course, that it goes across the borders, but you know, there's the Northumberland short pipe. These the same culture is on that border, though. Again, that's that's my point about them being English anyway, because they spoke English. But I just I think that the idea that it's a divided thing is that the majority of all the people there have spoke English for so long. They've been involved with it for so long. It's this modern construct of of speaking Gaelic. I just, I don't, I I think the differences are invented. Though you, I suppose you could say that. I mean, that might seed into to your point <laughs> earlier in terms of saying the nationalistic differences are they all invented? Well, I would say it's a bit, it's a bit of both, really. I would say, on the one sense, yes, you're correct that there are aspects of re sort of imagined or recontextualized nationalism on the other end i think there is a genuine uh, dichotomy there's a genuine bit of particularism which separates the gaelic because again they were also the most resistant to the english reformation and the scottish reformation obviously scotland has its own reformation so they remained catholic whereas the mainstream scots in edinburgh and glasgow were mainly the Calvinist iteration, then we have the Church of Scotland. In Wales, Welsh language existed and persisted in the West and in the mountains up until the arrival of English immigrants into the coal mining sort of regions in the 19th century. So Wales, unlike Scotland, was conquered by Edward I in the 13th century. It was, as you mentioned, in terms of its role, in terms of educating English kings, of course, Wales was created as a principality. The heirdom, effectively, of England was in Wales. And as a result of that, Wales enjoyed a special sort of relationship to the English monarchy, that and through the construction of the great castles, Carnarvon example. So... It's interesting to consider the difference between Scotland and Wales in the sense that Wales was conquered, in the sense that Scotland was 
joined with England. Then also we have to expand this idea of Britain to the British Isles. Then one looks at Ireland. If one were to look at one group who still existed within the United Kingdom, who would probably view themselves as British over English, over Scottish, over Welsh, it is the Ulster Irishmen who do not view themselves as Irish, but they view themselves as British. So even geographically then, our notion of what it means to be British in terms of that civic sense, in terms of the union of all these various nations, is probably most profound in the split between Irish Catholics and Republican Catholics and Unionists in Northern Ireland at the same time. And of course, within Ireland, despite the creation of the English earldoms, despite the half-hearted attempt by Henry II to conquer it in the 12th century, Ireland has been conquered many times by England, but now is enjoying a sort of linguistic resurgence in the Irish language. And so much of Irish identity since throughout the 20th century, unlike the other dominions, because of course Ireland was created as a dominion in the 1920s, and then it was also the first nation to rescind all ties with the British Empire, with the British monarchy under Edmund de Valera through the 1930s into the 1940s. We're seeing this revolt against this idea of British nationality, and again it's linguistic in part, and it's also religiously motivated or was originally religiously motivated by the Catholic separation with England as well. So there are many categories of British nationality and geographic sort of denominators of what that really means to be British. And now it's interesting to consider Britain as a category because as we've essentially adopted an American attitude of England doesn't exist as a nation, Britain exists, and Britain was a nation of immigrants, as preposterous as that may sound, but we basically accepted the American sort of national story as our own. Britain, therefore, doesn't mean any ethnic category. It doesn't even mean this family of nations within the same island or islands. Instead, it means a series of values. And what those values are, which are being told, say, for example, by politicians, is becoming increasingly nebulous. And so in that sense, Britain as a civilizational force is now based not on not on ideology, sorry, not on um, ethnicity, not on language, not on history, but on shared belief. And increasingly, shared belief in what? Yeah, and also I think too is that there's there's the idea of it, and then there's the truth of the actual way of being, because fundamentally that is what a civilization is. It's what is its way of being? What is its procedural hierarchy? What is its actual? But in the actual, though, in the the actual thing underneath, that uh, not the propositional, that informs how they behave. So. We can divide there too with those two things to understand. Okay, what's the propaganda of what it is, and what this what this idea has been presented, and what are their actual common ways of behaving? What are and because they last much longer, they're underneath. And the other thing too is, I thought too is that with the island point, that does seem to fit into this idea of enabling and selective constraint when it comes to culture. Of okay, that is a separate island, whereas you have in terms of informing a a, sep- a separate emergent group of... I'm not going to talk about what I think their their patterns of behavior might be that are unique, but I'm just saying as a point that does seem to seed into that idea. And uh, the other thing, too, that just came to me... And I've got to, I have to go to the bathroom quickly after this, but 
I'll be back in two seconds. But uh, the other idea came to me too is that those just the northern um uh they were anglo-irish in the north they are anglo-irish in the north they, they were all immigrants as far as i'm aware and that well anglo-irish is uh, i mean ulster plantationists it was a, a scottish plan devised by james the first so they have as much in a way of scottish ethnic roots calvinist ethnic roots as much english later on so Ethnically, the Northern Irish are a mixture as a result of this. And there are also Irish, ethnic Irish, who converted to Protestantism, Anglicanism for various reasons. And of course, the Catholic Party was militarily defeated. And so to be part of the Irish elite during the 17th century and the 18th century, after the defeat of the Jacobites, one had to be of the established church before we see disestablishment during Gladstone's tenureship as prime minister in the 1870s, I believe. So there are many reasons as to why that category exists. It's partly ethnic. It's partly based on this civic fealty to the idea of Britain, which at that point was at the height of empire. And it's also this residual element of Protestantism versus Catholicism. But this idea of the national sort of boundaries of Ireland encompassing the entire island of Ireland is something which is obviously the definite object of the Irish nationalists, Sinn Féin. And if anything, it was the defining moment in the creation of the Republic of Ireland. Do we accept an Ireland which is partitioned or do we not accept that? And do we fight for an Ireland of all of Ireland, which was the position of the anti-treaty party? And it's still that link, that division between those forces, which at least on paper makes up the political formulation of the two main parties in Southern Ireland, Fine Gael and Fianna Foyle. What is meaningful to you in terms of a these categories, or which categories do you find meaningful in terms of understanding who you are or, or who your people is in terms of you know in terms of how you live your life i'm just trying to get to the ground of the use of these yeah. categories and their utility yeah. so well well take england say for example um i don't it's interesting to consider i hate people who use the term european partly because it seems, in my view, very ill-informed, and it seems motivated by a political fealty to Brussels rather than any sort of genuine affection of European civilization. But I am going to use that term, and I'm going to use it in a far more sort of antiquated sense than a lot of people would use it so as to try and distinguish myself from these sort of people. But I'm also English and European. I wouldn't even refer to myself as British because I believe as a category of distinction, Britain no longer means anything to me other than the state name in which I inhabit, which is the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And so for that reason, I think in terms of Englishness, but even then, what is a nation? A nation is bound by its various institutions. England still, or Great Britain, still has a state church, which I do not belong to. And as a result of that, I, there you can say there is an element of sort of individual schism, albeit that was sort of legally rectified with the emancipation of the Catholics in the early 19th century. So I believe that that is obviously reconciled. And then, of course, there is the monarchy. 
that in itself is slightly sort of difficult for me because from a historiographical point of view, I look at things from the perspective of the Glorious Revolution and I rail against that term. Perhaps it's better to refer to it as the Dutch usurpation or the Dutch conquest. Um, and I can go into many reasons. It's not even bound by my idea of Catholicism, but it's very much informed by my idea of what monarchy means and monarchy's relationship with parliament. As a result of that, I accept the monarch. I accept Charles III and his ascension, and I will look forward and be interested to see the ritual of the coronation. But I find it rather difficult to wholly accept the legitimacy of the monarchy, of the Hanoverian monarchy, which was installed after the deposition of the mainline Jacobins. However, when it comes to an English identity, because I believe Parliament still retains some sort of symbolic function, and it goes back to my, I, I believe, the greatest of all English kings, Edward I. It's interesting to consider that I hold very little personal attachment to Parliament, to Whitehall, to the Church of England, obviously, and to these various institutions which define this sense of nationhood in terms of a constitutional sort of sense. And as a result of that, I feel more particular to my own sort of region. I'm a sort of native of Wessex, and so I almost consider myself of Wessex first before of England, and I feel probably more so now that regional identities are perhaps coming to a fore in the north especially, or in juxtaposition to London and everything that London represents, that local identities, regional identities, country identities, rural identities matter. Incorporating this into an idea of Europe, because of this, I do believe that England is part of a European commonwealth and European civilization. And so I do consider myself part of Europe and I'm very much invested in the political situation in Europe. And I want it to be resolved satisfactorily as well. However, I don't see there being any political sort of superstructure at the moment which fills that role. And the European Union certainly is not that body. In fact, I've often stated on my channel that the European Union is not even, even if you sort of consider it ideologically, it's not really European. On the one hand, you can say it's, you know, Euro-socialism or Euro-communism or whatever, anti-nationalism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But my distaste for the European Union comes from the fact that it was a byproduct of the Second World War and really, you can look at the First World War and the Second World War as a prolonged European suicide. And into this vacuum, we see Soviet communism in the East and American sort of Western domination, as much as we can sort of use that term now in terms of a new idea of the West, American permutation, American ideas, and of course, us sharing the same language as America and us being sort of both economically and militarily indebted to the Americans, we almost owe them a cultural debt which has come at the expense of our own cultural uniqueness vis-a-vis -vis the Americans. And as a result of this, I see the European Union as an extension of America less than I do as a genuine instance of European self-determination. 
it's interesting that because of that view, I am drawn more to people like de Gaulle rather than Winston Churchill. De Gaulle, because I believe he was one of the few figures powerful enough and invested enough in order to try and recontextualize what Europe was away from this idea of America. And he failed. And I will go on record in saying that I believe part of his fall was as part of a color revolution. And since then, I believe, especially with our ascent into the European Union, and almost to the point that our leaving the European Union hasn't really mattered at all, I don't believe there is any sort of institutional cultural force within the European Union that I can recognize as being positive, which is very unfortunate <laughs> for me to say. And as a result of this, I reject it. But I'll be interested to see if anything comes of this idea of European nation, nationhood or ethnic pluralism, the idea of being of a nation and coexisting with all these various other nations as part of a civilizational link or civilizational continuity, which harkens back to the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. It strikes me that such a thing just doesn't exist unless you have uh, the unifying religious element. Otherwise, they are distinct different ways of being when you get underneath the propositional when you get underneath the metaphysics you find that in the procedural way inherited father to son in the developmental psychological stage these ways of being are distinct and they will rise up so either you need a religious force a political union is never going to do that because you need something that has some shared uh, sacred a shared temple for instance when you look at england Part of English temple is the countryside. It's not. It extends outside the church. That's not always the case. That's not the case for other other places because they still all at least earlier on in England it was because all the wolves were killed. There were no wild animals in the forest, so the countryside becomes an actual temple. And as we know, temple forms the sacred, and that's where all the other ways of being unfold out of that. But yeah, and I also mentioned also on your point what you talked about. You uh, mentioned Charles. I'm a, I know people's resistances to Charles and his connection with the you know, World Economic Forum and such. But when I look at that, and when I look at all these procedures, these rituals unfolding, I think what people need to do is to understand that the ritual itself, and you can see this in, in these, when you saw these chads who flew back from Iraq to, to lift the coffin themselves, there's a, there's a symbol there to show you that this thing, this ritual itself, is an organism. And that organism itself is Englishness. So when you look at the king, the true king of England is the over-king. It's, it's, it's tendrils are in all of us, in our value hierarchy. It runs deep. They're being forced to perform this ritual because they wouldn't, they would not do it otherwise. They're modernists. The Dark Lord Tony Blair was there. Sturgeon. Do you think these people would, if they didn't have to turn up at the proclamation, would they? No. That's not in there. They don't want to do that. But the force underneath that drives them to do that is because they're forced to, socially pressured, whatever. But underneath all of that, underneath all the economic benefits, all that stuff. And there aren't anyway, because if you took, if you killed the monarch, if, if, if France has a higher tourism dollar than the UK does, even with the monarchy, and they killed theirs. So the economic ideas don't hold up either. But as, as an organism, though, that's the thing that you're looking at. Put the individuals to the side. Put Harry to the side. The cut Harry and Megan. 
they're turning up there because of the social cachet, right? Or, or they're, they're, and that, what is that ultimately is the sacred. That's what drives them to, that's the currency that if people are there for utilitarian reasons at these rituals, ultimately it's the currency of this organism and which of course I would say, yes, it's been degenerated and attacked on all sides. But as a ritual to show you, it's, it's this organism that is saying, here I am, despite what they've done to me, here's this old ritual that they haven't got at yet. And they're still forced to enact. And they're forced to enact it because they know if they don't, they're pressured from us. They know they have to, or else, again, Sturgeon wouldn't be there. Um, I know that's a strange way of thinking about it, thinking about it like an organism. But it's, it's the truth of the matter. The history is alive. Our having been is in our existential being. So I really think people need to look past this uh, the particular person that is the king because as we see in the coronation, and I hope you watch it, and I hope you uh, look past the individual who's at the coronation and and look at the sacred symbols as they're as they're being imbuing them. That's their those sacred symbols are to determine how that individual is supposed to act. That's the king. The Spurs of St George. When you unpack the symbol, they're supposed to do that to understand the narrative order to be the king. So the, Charles is only the king in so far as he enacts the ways of behaving that are the English ideal, that are the, our heroic a pantheon of our greatest heroes, which are represented by those sacred symbols. That's only the case when he's the king. If he doesn't act that way, he's not the king. The over-king is the king. And so I just wanted to say that in the sense where people go look at these ceremonies because I've had a lot of people saying, oh yeah, Charles, WEF, uh, World Economic Forum stooge. Well, hang on. There's something else going on here that's forcing him, that's pushing him into this this way of being. Because these people, the transnational, the, the cosmopolitans, the technocrats would get rid of this thing. They've been trying to for years. Tony Blair with all his changes. Anyway, that's my, my rant. <laughs> well, I'd like to sort of um, build on, on those points, um, if that's possible. Yeah, okay, go for it. Uh, regarding this idea of the monarchy as an organism, because this goes back to what I've been trying to get at with my conception of nationality as opposed to nationalism. This organism relates to the fact that as nations are the extensions of tribes, each tribe, each family, each dynasty has a patriarch. And so in this sense, Charles occupies a very primordial position as that ethnic patriarch of, for, for lack of a better term, the English. And what I would actually very much enjoy is to reclaim the monarchy for England, to simply have an English monarchy yes. and nothing more than that without any sort of imperial affectations yes. or associations with any other countries in sense of revitalizing this idea that the nation has its patriarch and that patriarch, again, is subordinated to God. And in terms of the symbolism of those individual sort of rituals, I mean, you've you've gone over this on your channel. It's interesting, however, to point to that, that this is indicative of another association. On the one hand, you have the idea of the monarch as representative of this patriarchal organism, this extended tribe that is the nation. But before sort of going down that route and sort of equating this with some sort of neo-paganism, <laughs> um, uh, obviously the monarch is anointed in a Christian ceremony. And this confirms the idea that the Under monarch Christ. is 
under Christ. Everything is, I say is, is under fun. Christ. Just putting that <laughs> out there. Go on. But the, but the monarchy is a vice regent, and this comes into my uh, my conception of Europe, that Europe should be a confederation of monarchies, each individual monarchy, each individual nation, under some sort of European sort of civilizational force. And what depresses me about the situation in Europe is that Europe has lost this for the most part. Even the nations that hold on to their quote-unquote monarchs, whether it be King Philip of Spain, whether it be King Philip of Belgium, whether it be King William of Denmark, uh, the Queen, sorry, uh, King William of um, the Netherlands, uh, the Queen of Denmark, the Kings of Norway and Sweden, they almost fulfill a constitutional role in that of a hereditary sort of head of state in the same way that Germany or Italy occupies that role. And for that, for that reason, England is unique in the sense that we still have a sacred monarchy. The only monarchy I could, would compare it to in terms of the world is not the European monarchies that exist, but the Japanese monarchy in terms of representing this idea of the patriarch and also being head of the national religion. In England, obviously, it's Anglicanism. In Japan, it's Shintoism. So there are many things which are interesting isn't to build upon that idea and i do feel that the various nations in europe suffer from a lack of this concept and so they have to rectify this idea of monarchy you have to bring back this idea of monarchy in a bastardized form and so for that reason you apply the idea the sort of primal need the conception that national conception of monarchy onto the german chancellor onto the French president, as seemingly ridiculous as that sounds. So that's what I have to say regards to, and again, even the American president. The whole notion of the American president is wedded to a monarchical idea. Mm. However, it's within a Republican constitution. And you can say that the monarchical system in America has increased, not decreased. Mm. The president has become more powerful vis-a-vis yes. -vis the other institutions, the Congress and the judiciary, even the states. So it's interesting to consider that this need for monarchy, I believe, is eternal. You can even see it in China with uh, with uh, Xi Jinping, who, if anything, just looks like a like a um a red emperor of the sort of neo Sweden city. <laughs> if I'm going to come up with some uh, uh, ridiculous and sort of uh, far fetched comparison there, but I want to bring this back to what you had to say about Charles because my problems. I mean, on, on the one hand, you can say that Charles embodies certain sort of elements of classic Scrutonian conservatism. Obviously, everyone points to Poundbury. I looked, say, for example, to his work in the Duchy of Cornwall, which he was able to turn into a viable business, as in many ways, you can say it's a modern example of noblesse oblige. And I would say that puts him in relatively good stead and something I don't believe will be continued under William. However, Charles is interesting in the sense that I really do think from an intellectual point of view, Charles is not a Christian in the sort of sense that we would consider it the queen to be a Christian in the sense that she was personally devout, albeit she presided over the complete collapse of the church of England, such as the sort of, such as the paradox that is the reign of queen Elizabeth. But Charles is a perennialist. He's familiar with, obviously his wife was, a, his wife was a Catholic. Um, he himself, I believe is a bit of religious skeptic and he's fully aware of and studied Islam. 
the irony being that I would look to Charles as the ideal for some sort of imperial monarch if the British Empire still existed and where he, say, for example, wanted to appeal to his Muslim subjects, his Hindu subjects and his Christian subjects of all denominations. I can see Charles occupying this position in the Delhi Durbar and assuming the ancient sort of state symbols of sort of mogul imperial headship mm -hmm. um, in the sense that there is an aspect to him where he is the monarch of all and yet the monarch of each. Mm -hmm. And yet I feel that this perennial concept of monarchy would completely contrast with this idea of trying to reclaim the monarchy for an English state. And for the worst, I believe that perennialism sort of could further in sort of enforce my view of England post the empire, which is the fact that the administrative superstructure within Great Britain has never ceased to think of itself in imperial terms. And because of that, the empire lives on. It simply has recontextualized its notion of space. London remains an imperial capital. And my view is the solution for Britain to retain this imperial position, this idea of global Britain, is to import the empire into Britain. And in that sense, look at Charles. Charles, if anything, could act as some sort of bridge between the new nationalities within England. And so in this sense, in order for there to be a reclamation of an English monarchy, there would need to be a fundamental division between this imperial identity of Britishness, which supersedes ethnic boundaries and has now transcended the idea of space, but it exists as a globalist idea and exists as a, you can say, a notion beyond that of Little England. There are two ideas that exist, Little England and Global Britain. And these two ideas cannot exist simultaneously. One has to completely triumph over the other. So it'll be interesting to see from an ideological point of view how Charles could fit and be contextualised within that feud. Yeah, and the thing is too, when you look at this imperial idea, this all happened, it emerged and happened. This idea, if you ask someone on the street in 1889, up in, in the Victorian age, if you ask them about, oh, the British Empire, they would say Wales, Scotland and England, right? If you ask about the colonies, they say America and Australia, because they're, they're, this concept isn't sort of invented by that, by that, in that era of, uh, in Kipling's era. It's invented then, and then after that, that's, that sort of one nation Toryism uses it as a thing to go back to again and again and again for elections, because you can just cast out slogans about the greatness of the empire and to, 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 to try harvest votes. And you see that, and obviously there was India and such, but no one thought, it wasn't in the teleology of the country. That was not in, in, that was, it wasn't like Rome, whereas in Rome it's very clear in Virgil that this is a thing we want and we're going after. That was never the case in England. It sort of yeah. unfolds. People go out there and do it privately, and then it becomes the case after. Only at the absolute height of where it could be called an empire was it then, oh, why don't we start calling it this? Whereas no one, cause it's just such a, it's such a thing that you don't ever see in any other empire. It's, it's very unique in that way. And the fact that it's been called that is a big problem. Uh, and so I think 
if that being the natural identity of people, seeing as the English people and where they went to Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and America, that that still is the case that that's where the English people are, um, and that's where it was always what it was considered to be. And you see, Carlyle even talks about the same thing. He's not talking about India being a part of that, even though that is where those those people went. And as to your point about multiplicity, I think this is an incredible mistake. This idea that you're going to be a um, what did he call it? He almost tried to. Well, early on, he said, oh, "I maybe I'll take with the oath. I'll say I am the defender of faith instead of um, the faith." So that's where that that's that perennialist leaning there. So I like the fact that he's a, he's had some training with the European Traditionalist School and Guan uh, Guenon, however you say his name. But this idea that you're going to, as you say, it suits. It's never been the case. It's You're an English king. It's about Englishness. And the whole ceremony of the coronation shows you what you are to do, who you are to be. And it's it's a mistake in terms of the teleology of the place to, and it, to assume these different multiplicities of different narratives. It was okay when it was Wales and Scotland because they were basically English anyway, like, we, like I talked about earlier. But to actually do start doing this... And that, so I would call that a kind of a fake multiplicity to to pander. But the fact of the matter is, is that they were unitary in terms of the actual way of being. But when you start doing this across, you're not there to represent a multiplicity of the people that turn up in the place. It's the way of being that's dominant in the place. And that's really should the king should be unifying everyone to assimilate into that. Or else you're just going to have endless sectarian violence. I really think it's an incredible mistake. To, to push this and I think the mistake comes to that he doesn't realize that he's not the king that like I mentioned the organism is the king and he's he's is supposed to become not he's supposed to leave his individuality behind that's why the royal we exists that's why he is supposed to take a new name which was I saw I knew this was going to happen because I saw this with his first mistake was and he already had the pin there which is Charles uh, you know CR whatever it is He's supposed to take a new name because you're not an individual anymore. It's it's this way of being that you're now supposed to be the ideal of the greatest heroes. So whilst he understands being a traditional, he is of traditional leanings, the mistake of perennialism is to think that, ah, all these religions and these narratives, the teleologies, they're all the same ultimately. They're not all the same. Perhaps the sacred symbols at the bottom of it might be in terms of their intelligibility of cognition and being. But ultimately, the, to unify a nation, you have to have the same teleology. You have to have the same, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of monoculture, personally. But yeah, what do, what do you make of that? I, I just want to read out the, the exact quote on, on Charles, because um, I've, I've, I've seen quite a lot of confusion about this, but I feel it's necessary to go to the source. And this is from an interview in 2015. No, I didn't describe myself as a defender. I said I would rather be seen as defender of faith all those years ago, because as I tried to describe, I mind about the inclusion of other people's faiths and their freedom to worship in this country. And it has always seemed to me that while at the same time being defender of the faith, you can always be protector of faiths. So yes, to my mind, that is exceptionally perennial. And again, goes against this idea you've sort of 
been elucidating about trying to reclaim the king for the English or this idea of the we and the national organism, just on the notion of the name. Um, I, I don't have a, a particular sort of issue with that, simply because I I almost believe that taking the name, say, for example, George VII, um, would have been an indicator that everything was the same. That as with the Queen, I mean, if the Queen was a man, the Queen would have taken the title George, regardless of her given name. Because since 1910, we have lived in a new Georgian era, even though it is sometimes be confused with an Elizabethan era, in terms of the manner in which George V, George VI, and Elizabeth II have attempted to rule. With Charles III, I actually interpreted possibly a little hint of defiance which is appealing to a very contentious point in english history which is the Stuart legacy in particular the legacy of charles the first charles the second and even bonnie prince charlie and as a result of that connection from a traditional point of view one can say that beyond just keeping the name prince charles that this may have been a potentially controversial allusion to what our sort of modern sort of historiographical sort of construct has established as being controversial absolutist defenders of royal prerogatives against parliamentarianism. So I found it interesting that he took that title. But again, I I really want to emphasize my sort of conflict with the, this idea of perennialism. I mean, even the idea of universal monarchy, which I've discussed quite extensively on my channel. I talk about universal monarchy within a Christian framework as, as with Christianity, it is Christian universalist. It is not pluralistic in the sense of embracing a multiplicity of religions. And in this sense, Christian universal monarchy is different from other iterations, non-Western iterations of universal monarchy. That is essentially the role of the Holy Roman Emperor. So within this construct, you have individual monarchs, you have the ethnarchs, the patriarchs of the tribes, under an emperor who is the universal standard bearer of civilization in the force of Christianity. And this is the classical Ghibelline conception of what it means to be emperor over the Christian commonwealth. That isn't this. This is, like I said, a something very appropriate to this idea of the legacy of the British Empire. And in terms of being antithetical to Christianity and me bringing up this old mogul idea of kingship or emperorship installing within the Delhi Durbar as British emperors were, not British emperors, but the emperors of India and the empress of India, Queen Victoria. There's this idea called the Din Ila. It was a attempt by Emperor Akbar to synthesize all of the religions within India and Afghanistan at that time, whether they be Muslim, whether they be Hindu, whether they be Jain, whether they be Buddhist, and even Catholics, um, Jesuits were allowed to attend this great meeting of all the faiths. And so it's interesting to me that this example of perennialism is almost the logical and from the Muslim point of view, idolatrous and heretical sort of point with which you take the idea of the people of the book or protecting the Christians or members of the Abrahamic faith. In India, you extend it to the Hindus and with Akbar, you extend it to all religions. And in order to accept that, because you're not subject to one religion or one conception of God, 
the emperor is God in himself. He has that power. And he is also not a natural organism in the sense that he's beholden to a single people. He is a member of a dynasty or a ruling clique, which rules over all peoples in all directions, because the imperial title in all senses, whether it be Chinese, whether it be Mughal, whether it be Christian, is a conception to dominum mundi, dominion over all the earth in the Christian sense as being subject to Christ. So it's interesting looking about this idea of the British Empire. And ironically, in a, in a sense, the Empire of India, in terms of this conception, conquered the British Empire in terms of perennialism. Yes. And the interesting thing that came to me when you said that is that that idea is quite transnational. It's quite modern in its it, it, it unfolds in that way. It's almost uh, transhuman because what happens in that scenario is you have a loyalty to no man. If you're divided across all of these things, you're not enforced by any one way of being because those people aren't related to those other people in their way of being. So how are you supposed to act? And that's why the, the Imperium works, right? Works with Christianity because you have this unifying force that that at least unites the, the way of being to a degree. But if you do something like that in that perennialist way, as you say, he does become a god that is unrelated to his subjects and therefore is not is not restricted. Because when you look at the sacred symbols, for instance, is that you wear the ring of England. That is a, a ring binds a man to a woman in marriage. It's a enabling constraint. It's a constraint as a symbol. It's telling you what you're constrained by. You're married to England and Scotland. You're married to this. You're not representing anything else. And that's why it's so simple. If they just knew how to... You'd think he, he'd know how to read the symbols. It's You don't need to do anything. You just need to understand the narrative order of the place. I mean, this, it's simpler. <laughs> easier said than done, of course. But if you're properly educated in these, these things, it's telling you how you're supposed to behave. You're not an individual. This has got, here are the constraints for what you're supposed to do. Here are all the sacred symbols. That's why they emerge. And what's so brilliant about them is they are, so many of them just emerge out of the, out of the nation's way of being. Like you look at the, the gun carriage thing, where the Navy, instead, because the horse is bolted uh, with, the, mm. with, the, with the coffin that was put on the gun carriage, they decided to have the Navy hold it. But you see, you have to ask why does it emerge? Why do they think, oh, we'll get them to do that? Because it feels appropriate. And why does something feel appropriate? And obviously this isn't the case in every circumstance, but in general, this is why behaviors emerge. Because it comes from the value hierarchy. Feeling is emotive data from that. When something aligns and feels right, and you can see it symbolically, when you see the Navy, right, as an extension of this organism carrying this coffin forward and them separating like an organism you see it, it it encapsulates what the thing is so well if it's so appropriate whereas the horses aren't as appropriate um and the, the way it moves and and uh, and the way they're tugging it together it's sort of tr it's the tribe um but in general that is my key point and and that i'd love people to take away for when i talk about this stuff is that it's interpretable from the sacred symbols and how this monarch is supposed to act and that in fact is the king the over king are those things if you look into them it's telling you how you should behave and if you don't if you don't do that 
you're betraying the tradition so he this this perennialism is in complete conflict with his idea of keeping a tradition as a living thing going i just don't know how he doesn't see that is that he, he can't be have this multiplicity and also be the traditional aspect of this perennialism you can't do both it's not possible well, you're, you're you're sort of elucidating the, the 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 problems of being a historian in the sense that you have to occupy several positions simultaneously and avoid any sort of preference for one sort of figure over the other you can have your own sort of personal feelings or attachments to certain figures but i'm not interested in sort of writing hagiography or sort of extolling sort of nationalistic virtues of one people over the other so it's an interesting conundrum to consider but i feel that this from the sole point of view of the english monarchy um the great british monarchy is a revolution and it is as a consequence to the events of the last 200 years and to really emphasize your point those symbols which have become associated with the coronation ceremony predate the empire not only do they predate the empire they predate the empire significantly they even predate the conquest and so in this sense the coronation symbols the aspects are fundamentally english and everything else i mean the only sort of exception to this in terms of trying to wed ideas of imperialism to the coronation ceremony is say for example the stone of destiny being placed under the throne of edward the 1st if this were you you can say for example the construction of a peacock throne and throwing down the national emblems of all the conquered races maybe this would be sort of a total transfiguration of the coronation ceremony into something perennial but alas with that exception which is really dominion over scotland rather than transfiguring the nature of an english monarchy edward the 1st certainly didn't think of himself as a british rather than an english king the englishness of the coronation ceremony remains and remarkably it has survived all of this time and then of course there's even the dynastic point which i wanted to bring up the king is a certain king he is a descendant of the first king of wessex and so in this sense he is the living embodiment of that tradition and he is going to be elevated and transfigured symbolically and if one is christian and one believes in the validity of the ceremony as the vice regent as someone that has become beyond this role of a mere man and one cannot reconcile this view with this perennialism which doesn't place christianity ahead of any other religion and i find that if anything just indicative of the situation we're in now and if anything a potential sort of indicator of allowing the monarchy to be reconciled with as opposed to be used in reaction against what is currently happening to this country yeah i also think it is part and has always been part of our responsibility to as englishmen to articulate this to yeah, push uh, this quite... so, so the monarch knows you know so the monarch yes. oh shit i've done the wrong thing that's always been the case right not to rebel i'm 100 percent against any type of rebellion well, it was quite funny because i'm very against the idea of lese majeste or assaulting the dignity of the monarch and yet at the same time i'm for 
open, honest, truthful sort of appraisal of the situation. Mm. And in this case, as the traditional monarchist, one has to sort of remove the evil counsellors in the uh, yes. in, in the privy adjacent to the king. And uh, this was the issue which plagued and ultimately, in my belief, destroyed the reign of Elizabeth. And it will continue unabated until something changes. And that's the key, I think, is understanding, is that the organism is the overking. If people can see that, they can see, ah, that's what we're loyal to. And this was the case, too, is that in, in uh, Catholic history, uh, it was articulated by people who saw that, the, that they had a false pope. And they realized, ah, the true spirit of this pope is this. And we represent that, the true pope, right? It's the same sort of thing, that same idea of... Ah, this organism has been superseded by this false demon and needs to be, you know, pressured by us so it can come back yeah, to its natural exactly. narrative order. And I would just push back slightly on the fact of it, or, uh, some of the sacred symbols being purely just a repeat of continental. I'm not sure if you exactly said continental, but there are plenty of emergent sacred symbols that come. Oh, I, I, did, I don't think I said that. Um, oh, okay. Well, I just wanted to yeah. make, just in case, I, I, I misunderstood you, because there are English ones that emerge that are particular to it. Of course, you said... Oh, no, I said it was a fundamentally English ceremony. Yeah, great. Uh, of, course, of course, there are elements. I just wanted to emphasize the um, uh, the Stone of Schoon. Um, I've I forgotten my point now. Oh. Um, I, I, was, I was, yes, I, I remember it now. I was relating back to a period in papal history where you're talking about the period where there were two, sometimes three popes, the Avignon papacy. There was even a Pisan papacy at one point in opposition to the roman papacy well of course in russia this dichotomy exists when someone rises against the so-called rightful majesty of the czar one is an antichrist one isn't just an anti-king was an antichrist it represents a fundamental theological as well as a political subversion yeah right that's quite interesting that they had that because when you look at the emergence of the in england especially is that for us, with the the difference between the word law and right, on the continent, there wasn't that differential. Is when in German, right is like Richt or something. You'd know better. You probably speak German. Um, they don't have that. That word means the same thing. Whereas for us, it seems to be that it emerged out of that scenario where you had the Dane law, which was a very geographical representation that showed it. Ah, law and then right. And so this idea emerges, again, this is speculative, but this idea emerges of there's this, although, you, like I mentioned, you do see that idea with the papacy, with those uh, people fighting for the organism, the true organism, but this idea, like I say, of the idea of right with Alfred, no, 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 this is the right over that law, is moral law from underneath, isn't it? It's that moral impulsion from underneath, and you kind of see that in the common law as well. Not because the law says it, because moral law is is deemed the thing that needs to be followed. And that is just true, cognitively speaking, in the sense of what there is a value hierarchy. It's not just that. But I just found that interesting that you said that that was the case with the, the Russian, that, that no, you, you are moral purely for doing that, uh, as you mentioned. Anyway, if you want to comment on that. And... Well, well, no, it sort of ties in nicely to... The, this idea of a sort of civilizational breach, which is something I've been alluding to throughout this, whether it be national, whether it be religious, or whether it be a new sort of ideological paradigm. Because 
what you're elucidating in terms of something which is completely divorced from religious sentiment is this idea of legitimacy. Where does legitimacy come from? And in our current situation, you're with the monarchy referring to something which is an older source of legitimacy. But in the continent and in America, it is a source of legitimacy which has been completely conquered by other intellectual forces, namely popular sovereignty, the power of the demos to elect and appoint a government is something which has crept up alongside our monarchy. It is something which every intelligent person sort of realizes is the actual sort of executive will of this country, but it has never sort of completely eclipsed that symbolic value which the monarchy has. And I would say raw political power and legitimacy the monarch has in potential, if not actualized through you can say the inert political position of our monarch since the 18th century. So in the case of France, in the case of Germany, in case all of Europe, European Union, we have this idea of democracy as being this new sacrament associated with legitimacy. And any attack on it, therefore, is an attack on this idea of right, this moral order, and this is a consequence, you can say, of the total conquest of what had been a religious order or a national order by something else. And this idea of popular sovereignty has now moved beyond this idea of having any sort of real affiliation with the demos in particular, i.e. the demos of Germany, the demos of France. And if anything, now, this idea of democracy or popular right has morphed even further into this idea of global citizenship, universal citizenship, mass immigration, etc. And as a result of this, there is actually no longer any constituency assigned with this idea. The idea of the citizen, the idea of man, has become entirely abstract. And as a result of this, this is the source of legitimacy. Yet this is also, I would argue, a source of legitimacy which has no basis in reality, no basis in truth. It is built upon this construction of um, of the idea of man, or even if we're going to go the extension with this ideology, they wouldn't accept such gendered language that I'm going to be referring to it now. And as a result of this, you can say there is no legitimacy. The legitimacy is a phantom, and yet it is significant enough that it is being reinforced and buttressed, you could say, bludgeoned intellectually throughout the entire West to the point that we do not even understand what it means because it has become purely an abstract term. And once you make this purely abstract divorced from locality and divorced from truth, then it can mean anything you want it to mean. And as a consequence, when people say democracy... It doesn't often, if you take the logic of democracy, which I've outlined, it is in complete opposition. But such is the result, such as you can say the logical endpoint of taking an idea and making it purely abstract and therefore infinitely open to interpretation. And like with this system in historical India, the system of the Deen e Ilah, this is a form of a new godship, effectively a new superstructure which is completely detached from religion and completely detached from nationality, in which the figurehead or the, the figureheads, the elites, have themselves become gods in the sense that they have become the arbiters of truth, a truth which is completely detached 
from the ground. Yes, I very much agree with that, especially this idea. I think what seeds into that problem is this idea of the will of the people. And this is why that abstract meaning can just be so easily manipulated. The will of the people is an egoizing. This is the, this is lib, it's a liberal way of looking at it. It's attributing, it's this Rousseauian way of saying, ah, here's the people's will and it's represented by this democratic vote. That's all in the propositional sphere. That can just so easily be skewed and, and ruined outside of what actually is that people's way of being, which is the tr- which is where I would yes. say the moral impulsion comes from, right? And of so, and of course, and of course, you need to create a new priesthood who can interpret that post-personal will, that popular will. So you have created a new source of sovereignty. You have created a new god, and you have created a new priesthood. And as ungrounded, the interpreters, completely ungrounded yes. in the way of being, because it can just be a propositional thing that's turned, and they just have their yes. distribution cycle. <laughs> And that's the danger and of this as, idea result, of that this democracy. Yes. Go, 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 go. Uh, just, just, to, just to finish my point. Mm. You have is essentially a theocracy without God. Mm. Yes, hundred percent. Without the grounding that that gives you the possibilities, that actually gives you the direction and the true teleology. Because t- t- you can't think about a teleology just that it's just the procedure, propositional procedure, and its outcome. It's all the stuff underneath that informs how the ways. It's a pathway through a forest. And so when you put this will on top of it, it's just, it's, 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 it's putting a, it's putting a fake pathway over, over the true thing underneath. It's, it's, it's the domination of techne. It's the domination of, of a propositional manipulation that is the only authority of what it means rather than us looking to ourselves underneath and our impulsions we're told this is what the word means here's your will based on the 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 narrative that's controlled by the apparatus the cathedral is the term people use the tiavan term to talk about it but it really all stems from that idea that egoizing the nation as that you can determine a, a that rousseauian idea that oh here's the will of the nation just based on representing through the democracy. No, if you're structured by the way of being, and a king should be, by the sacred symbols, structured in this way of being, he can determine a direction, of course, uh, or the leaders can, but it's the idea that you can, it's the sum of the propositions <laughs> is, is, is the, the real problem, I see, with all of this. And just to add the final point to that, because this is rootless, because you have a new priesthood, who aren't essentially accountable to anything beyond this idea in the abstract, it now becomes a point of who controls the individual priests. And this is why this material, this ideology is also simultaneously materialistic, because once you have removed the ancient source of sovereignty as wedded to geography, as wedded to dynasty, therefore the source of legitimacy can become anything. And invariably, as has been demonstrated over the last 200 years, the source of legitimacy comes from economic power, from the merchant class, effectively, who have taken over or completely sort of made obsolete the roles of the original versus state, the original priests and the nobility. And so in that sense, this new class, in terms of being able to back fund the new priestly order, is the final component in terms of understanding this. And as a result of this, it, it sort of, 
invites this idea that reality can change at a moment and we have no understanding as to why it is happening because all of this is nebulous and all of this is chalked up to the will of the people when in reality there has never been a political or civilizational order in history which has been more detached from its subjects than that which is acting as a representative of the will of the people yes and which is the thing that is interesting though is that you do see like i mentioned with the organism there are you can think about that organism like a resource it's not economic resource but it's connected to divinity at the very top of it with the formation of the temple if you look all the way back to a Greek temple, when that first emerges, that's the first contrast, like I mentioned. That's the, when you establish the sacred that's closed off from the... It, it establishes the profane. It's closed off from the, the normal, the mundane, which techne, in which the known takes over and dominates. This economic realm exists... This economic manipulation, this will of the people, exists in that realm. It exists in that outside of the sacred. This kingship which still has this connected organism to it has that it still is connected to that's what honors are people still want the honors ultimately even if their interests are to use it for some utilitarian benefit for themselves ultimately though the reason why blair turns up to the ceremony ultimately is because either it's the enforcement of the leftovers you could call it of the organism the organism's still there but it's a you could call it a last cry a horn blow to the to the English people saying, I'm still here, hear me. And that is what those people trade on. That That's what honor, honor is, being there. If you're there for, because they're not going to get any position, they're not paid to be there, but something is, is enforcing them to turn up to the ceremony and the ritual. Something is enforcing all the payment for the ritual. Because the economic machine very quickly just guzzles up everything and gets rid of it, and they want to, and they've tried to, but whatever is left of that divinity what's left of the divinity, is what those people are all trading on when they want a lordship. So that is what I would say is the hope. The hope, or the hope there is hope there, is that it still does exist if you can look to it. While, cause, and my point is that because they're being enforced to perform the ritual because they know they have to, but ultimately underneath all that is because the sacred is st still there pushing back, I'm trying to say. But... Um, yeah, we, we should we should probably wrap this up soon because we're going on two hours. But maybe you can just respond to what I said and sort of wrap it up. And uh... yes, um, I, I I need to be somewhere by nine thirty. But just to compliment your point, this idea of the denigration of the honor system is nothing new. It, Tony Blair represents the worst example of this, not just in terms of his knighthood, but in terms of you can say the institutional establishment of honors for purchase. It was something David Lloyd George tried en masse, and it's something that uh, Tony Blair perfected. But this isn't a, a new system by any means. I mean, it became an institutional feature of the monarchy of Louis Le Grand, Louis Fourteenth, because in order to create... I mean, the, what I find very confusing about people's misconceptions of absolutism Absolutism is the creation of the modern state in the sense that absolutism implies that the state has the monopoly of violence, which everyone would agree is the modern definition for a modern state. And that is what absolutism means in this term. But how was absolutism achieved before we have the creation of powers which overthrow monarchs? 
Louis XIV believed he couldn't rely on the old nobility of France, the established nobility, the real nobility of France, because they had proven rebellious in the previous two, two centuries. In fact, for the entire duration of French history up until that point. So he creates a system of nobles of the robe, people who can pay, buy into the system, profit the king, who have no noble lineage, fake nobles, who by virtue of their assumed nobility can occupy roles as state functionaries. They are loyal to the king, they owe their position to the king, and they don't have a position of legitimacy, of rank, of dynasty or local connections, which mean they would have a constituency apart from the king. If anything, though, just to illustrate how old and why the motivation for this system exists, the fact that it's lasted for so long and the fact that we still have an honor system and it still has currency in the sense of appealing to a genuine idea of the second estate of the true nobility should demonstrate that regardless of the French Revolution, regardless of the expansion of the franchise in this country, despite every egalitarian overture made in the last 500 years, this system, in this country at least, has been able to hold on, albeit in its bastardized form, as with the monarchy. There is still hope, there are still these sacred relics, these emblems of something which is wedded to this idea of Englishness, which we haven't lost yet. And the fact that they want it, the fact that they want it at all, is this organism still in force? If it was valueless, because of course they've degraded it by their corruption, but ultimately, underneath, originally, it, that's still the divinity in it. So it's still rescuable. It's still rescuable if we act. If the if you know if people uh, uh, understand what it is, if it can be reiterated, what's really going on here, what's really connected to it. Because if it if it was meaningless, they wouldn't want it in the first place. If something wasn't forcing them and and, and pushing, if something wasn't making it valuable. It, it, that's a force in of itself. That's, and originally it is connected to the temple. Again, I know I'm repeating myself here, but yeah, I mean, that's, uh, we're sort of coming up on two hours, man. Is there anything you wanted to sort of, uh, finish with and then we'll wrap it up? This has been great. I've been really enjoyed talking with you. Um, I'm, I'm, and I'm sure the audience will really enjoy the conversation we've had. Oh, well, thank you, Scott. Um, no, um, all I want to say is thank you very much for having me on. It's been a delight to talk to you and I hope you every success and, uh, I hope the audience enjoyed it as well.